thank you for joining me on episode 61 of the Unique on Purpose podcast, helping you find victory in how God has uniquely created you. I am your host, Rachel Gentleman, just a regular gal trying to help people know they are called to be victors in Christ Jesus. And today I talk with author Shauna Monet, and she is the author of Is This the Plan? It is an in-depth look at the Christmas story. And I was in tears the whole time she was talking. Shauna has the most humble heart, yet she encompasses so much wisdom. And we really dig into the lives of Elizabeth and Zachariah and their importance to the Christmas story. Welcome back to the Unique on Purpose podcast. And I have Shanna Mom. Oh my gosh, Shauna, I just pronounced your name wrong. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Have you have you noticed that with with people that have a names like I can never get Haley and Hallie right? Um, oh, all the time. You know, honestly, there's times that people who have been in my life for a long time they call me Shana, and then like my family will be visiting, they call me Shana, and they'll look at me and be like, "How do you say your name?" I'm like, "It's Shana." They're like, why don't you correct me? I guess everybody gets it wrong. Yeah, I see. And and nobody. Well, people will ask me, "Is it Raquel or is it Raquel? Is it you know, or Rochelle?" But people mostly spell my name wrong because the regular spellings E L I spell it A E L, so I just tell people my name's not biblical, so it's fine. <laughs> but anyway, Shauna okay. Monet, the author Shauna Monet, and Shauna, and we had you on last year because you wrote this incredible book called "Is This the Plan?" and it's twenty five chapters where you just break down. The Christmas story, but you do it in a way. Okay, so Sean, she, oh my gosh, I'm going to say it wrong the whole time. <laughs> That's all right, I'll go with it. <laughs> so I just wrote a book myself. Something that I learned in writing is that you're not supposed to tell people a story. You are supposed to show people the story, and that is... Uh, just a, a, a step above when it comes to communication. And that's exactly what you have done. You didn't just tell us the story of these different people in the Christmas story, but you showed it to us. And you take different characters that we see, and all of them, actually, not just like a handful of them, but you take all the characters that are represented in the Christmas story and you break them down and you kind of give them, give us a piece of their lives. Tell me, why did you write this book? Well, for me personally, I sometimes feel like reading the Bible, and I know a lot of people like this, they feel that people are very distant from them. Mm. And a lot of times, especially when we're looking at people in the Bible like Mary, we elevate them to this point that we, we see what they did and we realize how amazing it is, but we don't see how God could ever do something like that in our lives. Mm. that he could ever use us in that same way. And so for me, it's like, you know, if you go through the Old Testament, you look at a lot of the patriarchs of our faith, they did some pretty horrible stuff. Right. Like, they had a lot of mistakes and mess-ups, and whereas we look at the points where they are brought to glory through God, we a lot of times kind of overlook their humanity in it. And so I really wanted to bring the characters of the Christmas story, the, the ordinary people that God chose to use, for this incredible moment in history when he brought his own son into existence among mankind. And I wanted people to be able to connect with them and realize that it's like 
bringing God into the world even today and sharing him with other people, it doesn't have to be reserved for the elite, that it can be anyone, even like the homeless shepherds in the field, that they are able to take this blessing that God has put in their lives and share it with others. Mm-hmm. I like so it was really important that people could see them as human. <laughs> no, no, that's really good. I like that because in the book, I mean, you mentioned just this small portion about Mary and how she was, un- you were used the word unimpressive something to that effect that she was unimpressive yeah. and, and you're right like she's just this ordinary girl that no one would think twice about and yet god chooses her and if god would choose her how much more is god going to choose us now i want to you you mentioned the word history and i and i like that you brought that up because you know the the podcast is called unique on purpose we talk all about overcoming obstacles how god uniquely created us and how we can use how he created us for his glory and so i'm like i'm sure some people are going well why are you talking about the christmas story when this is a podcast about overcoming well i i tell people that in order for you to understand your uniqueness, you really need to understand God. You need to understand his personality. You need to understand the Bible because the more you get to know God, the more you understand scripture, the more you will then be able to understand yourself and understand your purpose. And (laughs) I, I'm a history nerd. I love that you have thrown so much history. I love that you have researched. And did you find that in your research you were surprised at what you found because there were so many secular sources that support the Bible that we have today. Ancient secular. Ancient secular. Yes. Yes, there were, especially as I'm going through some of the characters like the Magi who are from the Far East, and it's such a different culture from the Jewish culture, Mm. which is where a lot of the root of the story takes place. There was a few texts that I came across that I had a few friends that are like, you're not going to want people to see you reading that. And I'm like, it's research. (laughs) 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 I don't believe what's being said, but I need to understand the culture. Yeah. um, I was really amazed even just, you know, when we read that, when we read it, we know that it takes place during the reign of Rome when, you know, Israel was in possession of Rome and we have Caesar Augustus and Herod and all these things. But in a lot of ways, I feel like at least I never realized how much influence Rome really had in Israel at that time. And it was interesting going through and researching Roman history and Jewish history and seeing how those two kind of came together to create kind of that perfect scenario where Christ could come in. And so I, I thought the, the history was really impressive. So I had originally done it as just research. And then I'm like, no, I need to put this stuff in because this is some good stuff. Well, and I found, too, that there are people that have done absolutely no research about the Bible. So they look at the Bible and they say, oh, well, that's man-made. That was just created with for men over time. But when you look at the history and you find these secular sources, it's actually shocking to find because of those secular sources, the Bible's true. And the Bible's reliable because you yeah. have you have all these sources that are non-religious supporting the history of scripture. Is that what kind of you found have have you've experienced? Yeah, um, and and the Romans kept really good documentation, and so different events like Herod killing all the children in Israel after the birth of Christ when he's trying to get rid of the Messiah, even Jesus being raised from the dead and the tomb being empty, those are things that are recorded in Roman history, not just the Bible. Wow. And I think a lot of people miss that. Like, we don't really go into a lot of historical texts. I think that's an oversight 
um, a lot of times in the church is that we focus so much on just what's in the Bible that we miss the fact that the entire world around us is screaming God's glory. Mm. The entire world around us is shouting out his history to us. If we just look around and, you know, take the time, it's right there at our fingertips. And I was really amazed kind of going through just reading up on some of these, you know, leaders in history that we don't really, like Caesar Augustus, that we don't really think is being a part of the Christmas story. And really how much influence he had in that time and how much was documented because Rome was really at its peak under Caesar Augustus and how much of his reign had documentation and how much information there really was outside of a biblical source. Mm -hmm. And so I did a lot with that. Um, The other thing I looked into a lot is the original language. And I don't, I don't speak Greek or Hebrew. I don't read Greek or Hebrew, but there's so many resources on like core translations from the Bible. And so as I was going through it first, I was mainly focusing on, you know, a pre-existing translation, but I got to a point where it's like, I need to know it was actually written and, you know, really see it. And there was a lot of times that I would go through and it would be like, well, this word here has like these eight different meanings. Mm. And it was like, wow, that, that changes a lot, actually. Yeah. No, for real. <laughs> Yeah, so I really felt like actually doing the research, and I I feel like a lot of times, and not just writing, but just in general with study, it's so important to not just read the words put in front of you, but to really look at what was meant by these words, and why are they here? I mean, somebody took the time to write these down, inspired by God. Mm -hmm. They're not just meant to be on a page so we can check off the box that we did our daily devotion. Mm -hmm. You know, they're meant to be meditated upon and really have that time and energy put into researching. Yeah. You said daily devotion. Is that kind of what this book is? Could you do it as a devotional? Or I mean, because you end every chapter with really thought provoking questions. Is this something that you could do as an advent? I mean, what is the purpose of this book? Yes. So when I wrote it originally, I wrote it for me personally, that I wanted something that I could basically go back to every year, pull it out and refocus myself every day leading up to Christmas, the Advent season. And the first time I did it, I didn't actually put the questions at the end. That was kind of an afterthought when I was going through it and I started kind of glazing over it. And I'm like, you know, I need that, that point at the end that causes you to stop and pause and really think about it. So I kind of reformatted my original to make it more like a devotion. In my family, we read one each day going through Advent. Um, I sit down with my kids and we read it and we go through the questions and, you know, we'll talk about them at a child level, but it it always puts those thoughts in my head that I start kind of going back over and really trying to apply that scripture to where I am at that point in my life. It's also written that you can use it as a small group study. And even though it is centered around a story that we traditionally attach to Christmas, it's not really just a story for December. It can be done any time of year, really, because the birth of Christ, it is something we celebrate at Christmas, but it affects our faith every day. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm going to try. I say I I say this with with a huge heart. I really do. I'm seriously going to try and do that this year, just like you do with your family, where we start at December 1st and we read a chapter every day. And that's kind of why I wanted to bring you on before Christmas. So if anybody wanted to do the same thing, because there are a lot of people that they will read a chapter of Luke 
up until, you know, they'll read the whole Christmas story in the Bible up until Christmas. And that's kind of their advent. That's kind of their tradition, which I think is awesome. But I know for me personally and knowing my children, they're not going to fully understand the scripture. But when you take your book along with the scriptures, it kind of gives you a little bit of a deeper meaning because you have dug so much into it. But Shauna, I'm going to challenge you a little bit today because... Last year, we talked about kind of the villains of the Christmas story. We talked about Herod. We talked about Caesar. And there's so much history that is recorded about them. But I want to talk about a couple of characters that a lot of people kind of ignore or they don't necessarily think of them as part of the Christmas story. And that is Elizabeth and Zachariah. But I also want to talk a little bit about Gabriel, too. Because when we talk about the Christmas story, it's mostly focused on Mary, which is understandable. She's the one that's housing the Christ child, you know, and she's the one that's ostracized from her family. And then, of course, we see Joseph and we see him as the hero because he listens to God, marries her anyway. And so a lot of the story is wrapped around those two and even the Magi and the shepherds. But I actually want to talk a little bit about Elizabeth and Zachariah, but I almost feel on the surface that they are insignificant, but I'm sure you would disagree. Yeah, when when they first read the story, they kind of feel like a side note, but um, as I was writing Mary's story, and, you know, Gabriel comes and visits her and tells her that she's going to basically bring the Son of God incarnate (laughs) um, into the world that she's going to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit that the Messiah is going to be born and her whole life has just flipped upside down and in that moment the one person she decides she needs to go see is Elizabeth Mm -hmm. and to me when I have those moments in my life that it just feels like you know I had this plan and I, I knew exactly where my life was going and all of a sudden it just all goes everywhere and everything's up in the air, and I'm sitting here holding the pieces of my life, wondering how am I going to get through this? You know, I, I have that person in my life that I'm like, I need to go to this person because I can, I can go to them, and I know, I know that their faith is genuine. Yeah. I know that they will love me and not judge me, and they will instruct me and counsel me in a very real way that will bring me to God and help me to get through this challenge with God. And so when Mary chooses to go see Elizabeth, that to me said a lot more about Elizabeth than they could have said anywhere else is that even though Mary didn't live in the same town as her, she probably didn't see her very often. It was usually the families would travel to Jerusalem um, once a year for the pilgrimage, but it wasn't as if they were deeply involved in one another's life. And yet when she found herself at that point, the one person she thought of was Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. And so she basically puts a stop on where she is in her life right there. And she travels to go see Elizabeth. And I love the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth. It is so small and it feels so insignificant. And it, in a lot of ways, If not for the birth of Christ, their story would have been this, like, epic adventure, really, Mm -hmm. because they brought John the Baptist into the world. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's like, I feel like just kind of that oversight with Jesus, but John was brought to make the way for Jesus. And as we watch their ministries, they get older, John preparing the way through baptism and the relationship that him and Jesus have. It's really amazing that that relationship really started 
way back here with Elizabeth and Mary. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was so beautiful that he was, it had started so far before and mm-hmm. somehow I'd always missed that. Do you think that, I mean, I know I completely agree with your point of view, but do you also feel as though Mary went to Elizabeth? Well, no, I guess that doesn't sound right. I almost feel like it was confirmation, right? Because Gabriel approaches Mary and he tells her, your cousin's pregnant too. And it's like, really? Because she's so old. Like, uh, but, but it's, she goes, she sees Elizabeth, she's sees that she's what, six months pregnant, but then there's also a conf, another confirmation because Mary hasn't told Elizabeth yet, Hey, I'm pregnant with, you know, with God's child. And yet Elizabeth has John leap in her womb. And right then it's almost like she gives Mary a prophetic word. It's almost like it's, it was just confirmation after confirmation. I don't know. What do you think? Yes, no, I completely agree. And in in that time, like, you know, when we're we're jumping from Malachi to Matthew, a lot of times we kind of, it's this very smooth transition, and we see all the prophets here in Israel. And when Elizabeth prophesies, we don't really think anything of it. But first of all, for a woman to prophesy, that Mm. was was very rare. Yeah. But for her to prophesy in her home, not in the temple, but in her home over another woman. Mm-hmm. With her husband, the priest, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, right there silently. It was that that right there is an incredible thing because you know, with with the exception of a very few women, we don't see many women in the Bible prophesy. And that moment when she has that revelation and she sees Mary come to that door and that baby leaps inside of her, and there's a connection between. John the Baptist and Christ and John the Baptist, even as an infant growing inside his mother, has so much joy about being that near to the Messiah um, that she she feels him leap within her. Yeah. Okay. And no. <laughs> it, well, OK, I wasn't going to go this direction, but now you've you've got you've got me like thinking and you're giving me chills here. So you're right. Like she prophesies in her home. Zachariah is probably right there. He's silent. And do you. And, OK, let me back up. I'm getting like so excited that I'm stumbling over my words. <laughs> so when Christ came, he really elevated women. And when people say that Christianity is oppressive to women, it's like, oh, man, you need to go back to Scripture and find out what Jesus did because, man, he elevated women to an extreme level. Do you almost feel like Elizabeth is kind of the beginning of that? Because her husband is silent and she has to do everything and say everything. And even when John is born... She says she's the one. I mean, she heard from the Lord, but she's the one that says his name needs to be John. And everybody's trying to convince Zechariah to name him after himself, name him Zechariah. And he goes, nope, his name's going to be John. Like, that's huge. Do you almost feel I'm sorry, I'm catching you off guard with this question. But I mean, this is kind of the beginning of uh, elevating women a little bit. Well, and I, I do think that, like, in addition Elizabeth had been so low for so long. Mm. Um, at that point in time, um, like today, we have a lot of people in our lives that struggle with infertility. Um, my sister and her husband struggled for a long time. And, and I say that as a past tense, not because of the fact that they had a biological child, but because God was able to move in their hearts and their lives and bless them in a way 
that they have come to a point of being content if he chooses not to give them a child in that way. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's an incredible struggle. Um, I know for years it was, it, it caused my sister like physical pain to hear someone was pregnant or be near a new mother with a child. And it was overwhelmingly painful for her. Yeah. And, um, I know it was like, it was hard for me even when I was having my second child because like I was super excited and she was happy for me, but it's like, I could, I could also see that pain in her. Yeah. And you know, today we have a better understanding of what infertility is that we understand genetically how a child is formed. Doctors are able to examine the mother and the father and try to help them come up with alternatives. And there's a lot of different options and things that can be tried when you are in those situations. In biblical times, though, they didn't have that type of understanding. And so when you see the word barren in the Bible, it is the closest thing we have to infertility today. Mm. But what it is is for them to be barren, they first of all didn't ever put that on the man. It was always put on the woman. And back in Genesis, the first instruction that God gives to creation is to multiply and fill the earth. Mm -hmm. And if you took that command very seriously, that that was their job was to multiply and fill the earth. And that was put heavily on women in that culture. So if a woman couldn't have a child, it was looked at that God was withholding a blessing from her, or it was a curse, or it was a punishment for something she had done. Mm. That it was a very spiritual, it wasn't a physical thing, it was a very spiritual thing. And so with Elizabeth being in that position that you know, she's from a priestly family, and she's married to a priest, and she's not being blessed with a son. You know, it, it doesn't matter how righteous they say they are. It's like, yes, but you can't have a child. You're barren. So what okay. did you do? Or why is God withholding this blessing? And so it, where she's dealing with the struggle of not being a mother, she's also dealing with the shunning in society that in Roman culture, it was actually grounds for divorce if a woman couldn't produce a child. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of a lot of areas in the Jewish culture, there would be some communities that they wouldn't speak to the woman. They would actually just treat her as though she was dead. Wow. And so it was a very horrific thing, even more so than now, to be dealing with in that time period. And so for Elizabeth, living her entire life with this, this shame and this distancing and where she knows she's she's living for God, that constant question as to God, if I'm still struggling with this, like, is this a curse? Is this a punishment? Did I do something? Like, is there, is there a reason you're not blessing me in this way? Mm-hmm. And to be struggling with those thoughts her entire life, her entire marriage, and then have God come in and answer them in such a strong way that it's like, not only am I giving you a child, but... I am giving you a child in the spirit of Elijah who will lead the way for the Messiah who will rescue my children of Israel. He elevated, he took her just out of this point in her life where she had nothing. I mean, she was nothing in regards to society and brought her to this point that it's like, you know, they might see you as nothing, but I have this incredible gift I'm giving you that it's time for my child to come in and now it's time for you to fulfill your purpose. And to me, that was just, I don't know how I would have felt being Elizabeth 
you know, coming to this point of contentment in my own life where I'm, I've gotten myself content with this idea that God is never going to bless me in this way and then just have this overwhelming blessing put on me and being able to feel the Spirit of God, which was something that was typically reserved for the men. The women didn't go into the temple. Like they, they could go to like the outer courts, but to actually go in the temple and be in the presence of God, that was something that was denied to them. And today we really take that for granted. Yeah. But to Elizabeth, being able to feel that Spirit of God as John is growing inside of her and then be in the presence of the Messiah. And outside of the temple. By, Yes, outside of the temple, in her own home, and realizing just how strong God is in that moment. And he didn't care that it was two women. He didn't care it was a barren woman and an unwed mother. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter to him that they were his and he chose them. And even though the children that were growing inside of them, yes, they were, it was an incredible gift, but he chose them. Mm-hmm. And to pull them both out of those points in their lives, like Mary's at the beginning of her journey, you know, she probably had her whole life planned out ahead of her. And this was not what she was expecting. And Elizabeth is near the end of her journey where she has accepted that this is the life she has and the life she will be living. And for God to just so radically come in and bring these two women together in such an intimate way. That, that to me, it was just, it's one of those things that even reading through it today, it just, it brings tears to my eyes. Because you're bringing tears to my eyes like I'm sitting here crying right now just listening to you describe it. It is you've I've never looked at Elizabeth like this before. And so, like, you're you're giving me goosebumps and listening to this anyway. Continue. But that was one thing that just really stood up for me and for Elizabeth. And I go into this in the book that the time period when Zechariah, he sees Gabriel in the temple and he struck silent and um he spends the entire pregnancy in silence. And for Elizabeth, she has really felt isolated much of her life. She's felt like she's been trapped in this silence her whole life because of she's been barren. She's been kind of shunned from society and she hasn't been welcomed in. And then suddenly she has this child in her and she feels seen by God and she feels recognized mm. by God. And she's like, she wants to proclaim it from the rooftop. She wants to go, you know, prophesy. And whereas she chooses to remain in seclusion, for a good deal of the pregnancy. There's this overwhelming affirmation in her life that she has never had, this closeness to God she has never had. But on the reverse, we have Zechariah, who, Zechariah, he was a priest, and he would go into the temple, and when he actually encountered Gabriel, he was in the holy place, just outside the Holy of Holies. Like, he was as, almost as close to God as you could get as a priest. Mm-hmm. And when he was told that Elizabeth was going to have a child, he doubted. And because of his doubt, that closeness that he suddenly had with God, that ability to speak for him was taken away from him. And so for him, that time of silence, it would have been very difficult for him. He went from having this intense interaction with God to this distancing. And so I thought that was really interesting with Zachary and Elizabeth, that this time of silence is really the reverse for each other. For Elizabeth, it was this time of drawing near to God. And for Zachary, it was this time of feeling distanced from God. So and, it's like the roles um, were flip-flopped. Is that kind of what you mean? Yes. Okay. And it was. And then when Mary comes in, Elizabeth is the one who prophesies over him. Not Zachary, not the priest, not the mm. one you would expect, but his wife, the barren woman, is the one who prophesies over him. Wow. Prophesies over the Christ. 
um, and it's the first one to do so. We have later um, with Simon and Anna in the temple where they also they also prophesy over him. But at this point, the first person who is called to prophesy over the Messiah is this barren woman. Mm. Um, and to me, that was something that that just that really just spoke to me. And with Zechariah um, sitting back and seeing God work in his wife in this way, and being the price and being the priest and having to have such humility to be willing to step back and allow his wife to be the one that was chosen as the instrument of God in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, what an honor for a priest to be given to prophesy over the coming Messiah. Mm-hmm. But here he is watching his wife. And to me, it was like, I sit there and I read it and it's like, what would have been going on in Zechariah's heart at that moment? You know, seeing, seeing this, his cousin come in, this young woman who is not even married yet, and his wife, who's supposed to be barren, <laughs> who's now carrying his child, that he knows, he knows, because of his encounter from Gabriel, is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, is going to be the child born in the spirit of Elijah, who, the return of Elijah, basically, and it's not really an inca- it's not like an incarnation or anything, or... Um, it's not as though Elijah's coming back from the dead. They're not referring to the return of Elijah in that way, but a prophet with the same spirit, the same authority, the same power mm. of Elijah. Okay. The cop. Um, and so this is something that the priests have been looking for for a long time. And so Zechariah knows that that child that Elizabeth is carrying, that is the child that is going to be born in the spirit of Elijah. So even though he was not told this by Gabriel, he knows from his study of biblical scriptures that that child, born in the spirit of Elijah, is the forerunner of the Messiah, which means the Messiah is coming soon because that child is the forerunner. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean he would ever meet that child. It doesn't necessarily mean he'd ever have any interaction with him. And the fact that even though in that time of distancing from God where he is being punished because of his, his doubt, God allows him to be in the presence of his son. Even in that time. You know, he allows him to be before him, and he doesn't give him his voice back. He doesn't allow him to prophesy. He's not chosen for that role. Mm-hmm. But he, God doesn't disown him. Yeah. And here they both are, this couple who has been through such a hardship in their life, really, with the scorn of society and people questioning, you know, how righteous are they really, and are they really following God, and the questions and the doubts and the struggle that they've gone through in their marriage. And suddenly being at this point that, this huge, huge thing has happened that not only has God blessed them with a child, but he has blessed them with being a part of the coming of the Messiah into the world. You know, you said something talking about Zechariah and humility. I never looked at him that way before, because when you are made silent and you are not doing the things that you have done for so long, especially as a priest, and that's part of your job is to talk, is to do the burn off. You know, you're doing all these priestly things and now you have to hold back and allow someone else to do it. That had to have been an incredibly humbling experience, but you never see him try and stop his wife. No. That's the thing. Even in the silence, he supports her. I mean, he's by her side. And, like, when she's arguing that, you know, his name should be John, he didn't verbally tell her, oh, I want him to be called John. That was something he communicated to her in advance. Mm-hmm. 
because he was told his name was supposed to be John, but she wasn't visited by Gabriel. And so when she's putting her foot down and saying, no, this is how it's going to be, like Zechariah is actually sitting back and letting her fight that battle. And oh. it's not until the people turn to him that he steps forward. He doesn't try to name the child himself. He's allowing her that right of naming that child. Mm-hmm. Um, even in that moment, he is willing to accept the silence and allow her to be the lead, which especially in that time period was was not common for men to do. <laughs> so to me, it was like it really showed the strength of the relationship, too, and the commitment they had to each other as a couple and to God and their willingness to submit everything that their their assumptions about their world and the relationship and their purpose and be able to submit all of that and lay it down before God and accept whatever he gave them back, regardless of what it looked like. You know, you you made a comment and it just made me think about, okay, so Zachariah gets, both Zachariah and Mary get a visitation from Gabriel, but they both have two different responses where, yes, Mary questions, but it's not a question of doubt. It's just a question of facts, right? Where yeah, Gabriel like, says, how hey, is this going to happen? Yeah. Hey, you're going to have a baby. Well, hold on a second. I'm a virgin. Like, I can't, I can't have a baby. Like, that's, I, I know how creation works, right? So it, it's yeah. just, it's, it's just questioning the facts where Zachariah's questions are ones of doubt. And, yeah. and so I find that fascinating. I didn't even look at it that way before how they just had two different responses. And, how Mary, in a sense, was blessed because of her obedience, where it's not necessarily that Zechariah is not blessed, but there are consequences when we doubt. And there is there was some pride there. And I feel as though because of that doubt, God kind of rooted rooted that out. But um, let's go back to to Gabriel. So we have Elizabeth, Zechariah, and it all starts with Gabriel and that's actually how you kind of start out the book is with Gabriel yeah. but you but you don't open with Gabriel himself you open with creation why do you do that you know in order to be saved you have to be saved from something and, and when you say time, saved from what like what's saved what does that mean well like when we talk about how Jesus is our savior he's our redeemer we have to be saved from something you can't be saved by a hero from nothing yeah and a lot of times you know we like to jump right into the new testament because it's easier to understand but the old testament um that history in our faith way back in creation to see that original plan like this is what god intended for us this is what he's you know this is what happened this is how things came into the world and now we are being saved so that what that original tension that god had can be restored that relationship that closeness with him and a lot of times, like, we sit here, and for some reason, we get so caught up on, like, did creation really take seven days? Or we get so caught up on the facts in creation that we miss the purpose of mm. creation. Oh, that's so good. And the purpose of creation was really God was creating a world to bring his greatest creation into, which is us. Mm-hmm. He was creating a world to give to us. And so these six days of creation where he is unfolding this incredibly intricate world, and it just is this time of just absolute beauty that is unfolding, it's a gift 
for mankind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at, you know, at first it's like everything goes well, but, you know, eventually something happens and it goes wrong. And, you know, instead of just having this moment where, you know, Adam and Eve, they disobey God, they didn't trust him, they questioned whether or not his plan was the right one, and they acted on their own without the guidance of God, and they ate the fruit from the tree. If, if, instead of them just repenting and then everybody from then on making all these correct decisions, the Old Testament shows us this long line of stories of people who do these horrible things. We have Cain murdering Abel. The time of Noah, there was no righteous man except him to the point that God flooded the entire world because it it was that bad. Mm -hmm. We have the story of Lot with Sodom and Gomorrah where God comes into Sodom and Gomorrah and destroys it and even told Abraham, for 25 people, if you can find 25 people in that town that follow me, I'll spare the entire village. Like the entire city, I will spare for 25 people. And there wasn't even that. You know, we have the time of the judges, which whenever I'm teaching kids, whenever we're doing story of judges, I always tell them, it's like, this is the one section in the Bible I'm going to tell you, do not read on your own. Don't just pick up your Bible one day and jump into judges or kings and just start reading. Yeah. Um, Because there's a lot of weird stuff and you really need a parent to help you go through it. Yeah, that's good. It is. It's just, there's so much of that depravity of man in that story and it just progresses and just keeps building and getting worse to the point that you know the israelites are put in slavery and then god frees them and then they disobey him after all the miracles all the blessings he's put on them they turn away from him and invite foreign gods into their land and you know then they're handed over to the assyrians and they're taken over by rome eventually and you have the, then they're at this point where now they're they're in the control of rome and the priests in the temple still aren't completely getting it because, like, when Jesus comes in, we, we have, we see the faith of the Pharisees, and we see what that faith is based in, mm. and it's not based in love, it's not based in the love that the Father has, it's not based in the spirit of the command, it's all about rules and regulations and perfection and appearance. And even then, it was like, we were not in any way worthy of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we did not earn the Messiah. We did not earn the right to be redeemed. That redemption, just like the world that was created, was given to us as a gift in love. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something we earned. It wasn't something we could ever earn. It was something that was given to us, even though we didn't deserve it. And at that time, when you know Jesus comes into the world, he wasn't like just sent into the world to just, you know, preach and preach and preach and eventually just be taken away in a chariot of fire like Elijah was. Um, he came to die. He came to be brutally killed by people who claimed to believe in him, yeah. who claimed to believe in God. And um, this very distorted perception of what God's will was. And for him to come into the world and make that decision to come to our level to redeem us this creation of his that has turned on him destroyed this beautiful gift he gave us and planned to kill him eventually Uh, sometimes it's like we it's i feel like we almost forget that jesus's whole life he knew where it was ending you know, every every time he, he chose the disciples, even when he calls Judas, he knows where it's ending. Yeah. And yet he still does it. 
He yeah. still calls him. He still brings him there. And so Gabriel was actually the one I ended up choosing because really Gabriel's story starts before Mary's because Gabriel's the one who comes to her and kind of starts that chain reaction. And so I began the story with Gabriel because I felt like um, as I'm going through a lot of the studies on angels and stuff, there's a lot of different beliefs on angels and not a whole lot of concrete. But one of the things like that, concrete evidence, is that what you mean? Yeah. Yes, concrete evidence, because, you know, none of us have really been to heaven to study angels. There's never been this point where, like, you know, Michael the Archangel just comes down and is like, well, let me explain it all to you. Right. It's this broken down fact. And so a lot of it is stuff that has been gleaned over time or things that have been accumulated in history, assumptions that have been made. But a lot of it, in reality, ends up being theory. Um, but one of the things that generally is accepted is that the angels have emotions. And that was something that kind of surprised me. I guess I always saw them as these, like... Yeah, that's not something I think about. Yeah, but the angels have emotions um, because Lucifer felt jealousy. Mm. You know, and we, we have that. He, he had pride. He had jealousy. That The angels are capable of feeling emotions. And so the thought ended up coming to me as I'm going through this. It's like, what if Gabriel, as a messenger of God, the one that God sends out to mankind and says, oh, go give them this blessing. And then he gets to see what happens with it. What is he thinking as God is like, oh, I'm, we're going to send the Messiah now. And it's like, okay, like I'm taking this message. But what feelings would he be having about that? Because, you know, the angels know what's coming. They know what's happening. They're not dumb. <laughs> you have like, to you have to think that Gabriel had to have had some sort of excitement, that there had to have been excitement built yeah. up for thousands of years that the Messiah is coming. You you have to wonder yeah. if the angels were like, okay, now, Dad, is it time, Dad? Is it time? Yeah. Is it time? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And so there's there's this pent up excitement that it's like finally, oh my gosh, like the Messiah is coming. These people are going to be redeemed. They're going to be restored to God because the relationship that God had with them, well, with us, it's that they rejoice over that one person, that that one lost sheep that's brought back. They rejoice over. Yeah. And so for them to be sitting here in that moment and have the Messiah coming into the world that's going to redeem the world, that had to have been overwhelming <laughs> for the angels. That had to have been so exciting um, that them bursting in song in the skies above the shepherds is, is not surprising at all because they have been waiting for so long for this moment in humanity for God to say, okay, it's time. In the book. Um, oh, go ahead. Yeah. But it's, it's one of the things that for Gabriel too, it's like the thing that I was thinking is it's like, okay, we're bringing God into the world as, you know, a son of man to die. Mm -hmm. If I were Gabriel, I'd almost want to put him, you know, in a throne room, <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, a, a sacred holy place. And yet instead he's being born to an unwed mother in a manger. Mm -hmm. um, and whereas I, I don't believe that like Gabriel was doubting God's plan or anything. It's just one of those things that it's like the simplicity of it, mm -hmm. that God could have brought Christ into the world any way he chose. It could have happened any way he wanted. And this was the way he chose. Well, and we don't think humility is the first if, as number one, right? Because that is kind of humbling for God to do. I'm going to yes. send my son to a peasant woman who, how you kind of put it, was just really unimpressive. 
and mm-hmm. is going to be born amongst stinky animals, but yet he's supposed to be a king. He's not yes. being born in this palace to rich, incredibly wealthy elite people. No, it's it's the peasant girl. So it it shows you the humility of God that he, probably even the angels aren't even thinking about. And in the book, and and you have to take liberties because you know you don't have all of the conversations you don't have every single detail in scripture so you take some liberties but i like i like it and i just want your thoughts on it you kind of put gabriel throughout the old testament where he's there when abraham takes isaac up to be sacrificed and he's there when david kills goliath i mean is that something that that you really think that he was i mean obviously we're speculating we're taking liberties but i just kind of want to get your thoughts so the only time, one of the only times you really know for sure that Gabriel was in the Old Testament is actually with Daniel in the lion's den. Um, at that point in time, he's actually called by name. But a lot of times they just say a messenger of the Lord or an angel of the Lord. And we don't know for sure if it was Gabriel. Um, there are only three angels in all of Scripture who are ever named. We have Gabriel, who is the messenger of God. We have Michael, who is the archangel. And then we have Lucifer, the fallen angel. And they are the only ones that are mentioned by name in Scripture. So with there being a multitude of angels, um, the hosts, the heavenly hosts, and there being millions of them, um, this uncountable number of angels, does it have to be Gabriel? No, it doesn't. But I feel like as I'm reading through, it's like Gabriel was given a special position, which is why his name is used, mm. that he is that messenger to God. And it says when he comes to Zechariah that he had been at the right hand of God. And um, coming to Zechariah in the temple, like I thought it was really interesting because Zechariah is coming into the holy place for the first time in his life. And that's the closest he's ever been to God. And really what Gabriel is saying is, yeah, I was just behind that curtain in the Holy of Holies. I have seen God. I have been in his presence. I have stood at his right hand. And he comes bearing this message. And so to me, I do feel like Gabriel has this elevation among the angels that in those moments where, you know, God needs like his best messenger, Gabriel is the one he sends. And so those moments where, you know, David is, David is going out and basically coming to this point that he is going to be, you know, the king of Israel, God's chosen king in Israel, that is going to lead over Israel and be a part of the genealogy of Christ. I believe personally, and it's speculation, of course, but I believe that it would have been Gabriel he would have sent to handle those types of situations. Same with Abraham. Um, if he was going to send someone to speak for him and promise that his son would one day be coming, that the Messiah would be coming, that he would redeem the people, um, I feel it would have been Gabriel that mm-hmm. would have gone. Yeah. And you no, know, and again, that's you have to take liberty sometimes because you don't have all the facts and you don't have all the data. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, though, I really felt like that would have been something that being the messenger at God's right hand that he would have been selected to be his messenger in those situations. Well, I, I'm sorry. I'm just like in awe listening to you because it's funny how we can read scripture and we just kind of glaze over it. You know, it's just the story and, and, and not to put down scripture, but when you are reading it, 
it's just telling. And that's why Jesus is so uh, Jesus is the ultimate communicator, because when Jesus talks, he talks in parables. He's showing us he's not just telling us. And your book is showing us just giving your audience a different perspective of the Christmas story, but yet showing us that. It's not just about Mary and Joseph. Like all these other people have such an important part to play and it's so in depth. So in depth you yeah. have to you have to study it. You have to do your research in order to know how in depth it is because it is very surface level. And that's what I love about God too is you can't outdo God in the sense of research. Like you're always going to be digging and finding something new and something incredible about the word. And that's really what you bring to us. So the book is called, is this the plan? And is it on Amazon? I didn't even check. It is on Amazon. Okay. Cause that's where pretty much everybody gets their books nowadays. Is yep, Amazon. That's, that's like the number one book selling site. <laughs> right. Okay. Yep, so, and, and I'll make sure that I put that in the show notes and I'm going to put the last time that you were on in the show notes as well, because we really go into depth about Herod and about Caesar and how important their history is to the Christmas story. Again, two people that are just there, you wouldn't think that their lives would be important. They're just mentioned in the story, but really, um, God really wove their stories in and it is so intricate and you do such a good job just sharing that with us. So, um, Shauna, is there anything else that you would like to share with us before we close? Um, well, of course, I hope everyone goes out, gets a copy of the book and reads it. <laughs> right. Um, but even if you don't, I, I just want anyone who's listening, I just really want to challenge them to really take the time this Christmas season to slow down and find that point of silence in their own lives. And it's so hard around Christmas. It's so busy and it's so loud. But just to come to that point, whether it be as Zachariah came to it or as Elizabeth came to it, of that point of feeling disgraced your entire life and coming to a point where you feel elevated by God or that point where you just feel like you're in control of everything and you just need to be humbled by God. But coming to that point of silence and really just taking that moment to let God move in your life and really make you understand what an incredible gift it is that he has given us through his son and what an incredible blessing he has given to all of mankind into the world and you know as we go through christmas it's so easy to get distracted it's so easy to get caught up in everything else but i just really want to challenge everyone just to take that moment to just really come before god and really just open yourself to what it is that he's saying to you this holiday season Awesome. Well, I could talk to you all day, but we do need to close. So, Shauna Monet, <laughs> is this the plan? I will stick the the book in the show notes so you can grab yourself a copy for this Christmas. What a great devotional on your own or with your family. And I, that's I'm going to be my goal this year because I've I'll just be honest, I have never really taken the Christmas season to sit back, reflect really on what Jesus has done and what God did for us and uh, what an incredible way to do that. So thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Unique on a Purpose podcast. And thank you, Shauna, for helping us understand the Bible more. I always say the more we understand the Bible and Scripture, the more we are going to be able to understand ourselves and how God uniquely created us. Unique on Purpose is available on iTunes as well as Spotify. Don't forget to share, download, and subscribe. And remember... 
You were created unique on purpose. You are loved. And because of Christ, you have been made worthy. I'll see you next time.